If you are new to the podcast and just jumping in on this episode, please don't. You'll be confused and frustrated. This episode relies on information laid out from original sources in the last 12 episodes, and we're not going to repeat enough here to make this a standalone episode. Also, if you're already angry at the very thought that we're discussing that the Visalia Ransacker and the East Area Rapist might have been the same person, you should probably stop listening now. Save yourself the time and aggravation and just go post something about how wrong we are on Reddit or the pro boards. We don't mind. We're not here to fight. Okay, if you're still listening and are interested in hearing how the VPD put together the VR case with the EAR and what evidence supports this connection, this episode is for you. If you are unfamiliar with the crimes of the EAR and the original Night Stalker, we've put some resource links up on our website so you can familiarize yourself with those cases. We're keeping our focus on the early EAR cases because his MO quickly changed and we're interested in the period closest to the end of the VR attacks in December 1975. Unfortunately, we don't have original police reports from the EAR attacks, so we're relying on the books by Larry Crompton and Richard Shelby, original newspaper accounts, and the Sacramento County EAR memo from May 1977 recapping what was known about the case at that time. These sources are less than ideal for us, and if anyone has the original documents they would like to share, please contact us through our website 122675.com or on our Facebook page. We are happy to review all new information and add additional episodes. The goal of this podcast is to provide information, not to prove a particular theory of the case. We're open to all ideas, and we've tried to include every piece of credible, related information we can find, no matter what it tends to show. If someone feels they have original documentation that proves the EAR was not the VR, send it our way. This is County of Sacramento Interdepartmental Correspondence, dated 2nd May, 1977, subject East Area Rapist. The Suspect All that is known about the suspect at this time is that he is young, white male adult, 19 to 25 years, slender, 140 pounds to 180 pounds, muscular build, and agile. The suspect has been described as White male adult, 19 to 25, 5'8 to 6 foot tall, with dirty blonde to medium brown, collar length hair, bright blue or hazel eyes. He wears a size 9 tennis shoe and has type A blood. He usually wears dark clothing with a penchant for army green. He always wears a mask and gloves. Age The younger victims tend to describe the suspect as older in the middle to late 20s. The older victims described him as young, 18 to 19 years of age. Assuming a woman in her late 20s and early 30s is a more accurate judge of age, it would appear to place the suspect in the early to middle 20s. Height. Most victims have described the suspect as about 5 foot 8 or 5 foot 9 tall. However, a 16-year-old victim who is 5 foot 8 and 1 half inches tall and walked beside the suspect from the kitchen to the family room. She states, with her high heel shoes on, she was the same height as the suspect. This would indicate the suspect is about 5 foot 10 or 5 foot 11 inches tall. Weight. The suspect's weight has been estimated from the descriptions of his build. He has been described as slender with an athletic build well-muscled, not heavily muscled as a weightlifter, but more like a runner or a swimmer. Hair. None of the victims have gotten a good look at the suspect's hair. One did state that it was hanging out from under his ski mask and appeared dirty blonde. Pubic hair and head hair recovered from the scenes has been predominantly dark to medium brown. There is no direct correlation between single strands of head and pubic hair and the color the hair appears to be. A single strand of hair taken from a black-haired person might be blonde or brown. From all indications and the opinions of the investigators, the suspect's hair should be medium brown. A witness who observed what is believed to be the suspect running from a victim's residence also described the suspect's hair as dirty blonde. Shoe size. The victims have described both tennis shoes and lace-up boots as footwear worn by the suspect. Numerous shoe sole impressions have been discovered at the scene of both prowler and burglary scenes. 
At this writing, Shu's soul impressions have been found at two rapes. During one investigation, Shu's soul impressions were found in a rape victim's rear yard. More recently, in Rancho Cordova, Shu's soul impressions were located in the master bedroom of the rape victim's residence. Both times, the impressions were of a herringbone pattern and measured 10 inches, which is consistent with a size 9 shoe. Type A blood. During an attack, the victim gained control of the suspect gun, and during the struggle to retrieve his weapon, the suspect apparently cut himself with his knife. Blood was found in the victim's hair and on her bedding. These samples were classified by the crime laboratory as type A blood. The victim has type O blood. Mask. The suspect always has worn a ski mask, usually the commercially available knitted ski mask. He apparently does not wear the same mask twice. On occasion, the suspect wears a mask that appears to be homemade. One time he had on a leather hood. Another time he wore a hood with eyes, nose, and mouth exposed. This hood was army green and made out of canvas or heavy denim material. Gloves. The suspect habitually wears gloves, taking them off only during the sexual assault on the victim. On one occasion, he kept his gloves on during the entire time, including during his sexual assault. These gloves are usually black leather type, or in some cases, more recently, he wore heavy cotton, brown in color, with heavy stitching. Voice. The suspect often talks through clenched teeth. No particular trace of an accent, but he appears to be disguising his voice. With older victims, he speaks in more normal tones and appears to be gruff only with the younger victims. Other. Brown lace-up boots, ankle-high brown lace-up shoes, desert boots, brown leather, black square-toed boots, black tennis shoes, red, white, and blue tennis shoes, black high-top military boots, fatigue pants, baggy pockets. Vehicle. Numerous suspicious vehicles have been checked and eliminated. Still outstanding is a 1952 or 1953 Ford or Chevrolet bright yellow step-side pickup. This vehicle was seen on Knollwood each day for three days prior to the rape on Thornwood. It is assumed that the suspect travels by automobile. On five separate occasions, dogs have tracked the suspect to a location one would expect to find a vehicle to be parked. The suspect could use other means of travel. There is some evidence that he has traveled drainage ditches, vacant fields, and park areas on foot. The Evidence in addition to the blood sample, head and pubic hair, and shoe sole impressions, latent fingerprints have been recovered from every scene. These latents have been cross-compared without a match. Composite. Numerous reports have been received from persons who have observed someone who looks like the composite of the East Area Rapist. There has been only one composite made of the EAR, and it has not been given wide circulation until now. This composite was made while under hypnosis by a 16-year-old Rancho Cordova victim. The attack. The suspect enters a residence in the nighttime through an unlocked sliding glass door or window. He will pry unopened doors and windows when necessary. Once in the residence, the suspect threatens the victim with a knife, gun, or club. He ties her with shoelaces he brings with him. Then he uses strips of the victim's toweling and electrical cord to further bind, blindfold, and gag her. He usually cuts the telephone cord and covers a lamp with something to dim the lighting. The suspect will spend from one to three hours in the residence. During this time, the suspect will sexually assault the victim several times. In between sexual assaults, the suspect wanders about the house eating and drinking. He wanders in and out of the house. Beverage containers have been found outside where the suspect apparently stands, possibly watching for anyone approaching the house. Because of his wanderings, the victim rarely knows when the suspect actually leaves the premises. It's usually 30 minutes to an hour before the victim is able to free herself and sometimes needs the assistance of a neighbor to get loose from her bonds. Scene of the attack. The suspect attacks a single-story, single-family dwelling in a middle or upper-middle-class neighborhood. Except for Rancho Cordova, B12, the residence is usually located near a drainage ditch, vacant field, new construction, or park area, or there may be a row of houses between the victim residence and such areas. The victim. Considerable research has been conducted in an attempt to find some common factor between all of the victims, without success. Failing this, it is believed that the suspect identifies his next victim by prowling and burglarizing. Burglaries of particular interest are those in which no loss or minimal loss occurs. During the rape, the suspect will frequently take small items of costume jewelry, class rings, 
an earring, etc. He looks through photograph albums and lingerie drawers. Also of interest are Prowler reports, particularly those where herringbone footprints are found. The investigation. Over 150 suspicious persons, including 290 registrants, ex-convicts, etc., have been investigated. Many have been eliminated, but most cannot be completely excluded at this time. At present, there are no strong suspects. The investigators are checking all suspicious persons and vehicles with the thought that the suspect may pose as a meter reader, insurance salesman, real estate salesman, or some other person that has or appears to have legitimate access to the neighborhood. Investigators are also reviewing all sex offenses, burglaries, and prowler reports for possible connections to the East Area Rapist. Hypothesis as to M.O. A hypothesis is defined as an unproved theory tentatively accepted to provide a basis for the further investigation. Modifications in the original thesis may be necessary as the investigation proceeds. However, effort within the framework of the hypothesis generally gives superior results to activity on an undirected basis. From a reading of the reports, the following impressions were gained. The first few cases of the EAR seem to have been conducted on an individual, somewhat opportunistic basis. His attacks were confined to cases of young girls he had apparently determined to be in defenseless situations. Later, he refined his technique and began to attack married couples. The remarks below apply to his operations in this latter phase of his development. He seemingly finds a neighborhood to his liking in which there is a home for sale or under construction. These specimens may be studied for such features as floor plans, locations, and types of window and door locks, etc. Preferably, there should be an open field, school grounds, levee, or concrete-lined ditch at the rear of the development. His getaway through such areas is attended by only negligible chances of being spotted in the early hours of the morning. He next spends some time in prowling and or burglarizing in the neighborhood, perhaps picking out a suitable victim, studying her and her family's habits, and further familiarizing himself with the interior of the house or houses he intends to break into. There seems to be a lot of consistency in the physical description of the EAR and the VR. They're both described as white males. The EAR was estimated to be 19 to 25 years in 1977. The VR would have been 18 to 27 in 1977. The EAR is described with more height variation, but they seem to settle on 5'10 to 5'11. The VR was pretty consistently described as 5'10. The EAR's weight range was 140 to 180. The VR's weight range was 150 to 180. Not a lot of difference there. Both were described as strong or muscular, but not bodybuilder type. This is consistent with how Beth Snelling and Jane Smith described him as having a strong upper body, shoulders, and arms. Both the EAR and the VR were described as being extremely agile. At this point, there hadn't been too much look at the EAR's hair, but he was described as blonde or dirty blonde. A Gowan who got a good look described him as having blonde hair, and the neighbor who saw him fleeing McGowan described it as dirty blonde. The EAR was described as pale or having a very light complexion. That matches McGowan's description exactly. The EAR is described as being left-handed. It sounds like he could have been ambidextrous. He switched the gun between his right and left hand and often carried two weapons, one in each hand, that he seemed to be able to use equally well. The VR uh, was also described as left-handed, given his cracked shots uh, in both the Snelling and the McGowan cases. Both of those were left-handed shots. Both the EAR and VR had size 9 shoes. Both wore ski masks. The EAR changed them up every time. Uh, We also have two different ski masks described by McGowan and Beth Snelling, so that's consistent as well. There was also a possible ski mask discovered at the site of Donna Richmond's body. Both the EAR and VR wore gloves. McGowan described brown cotton gloves, which were also described by EAR victims. The EAR is described as wearing dark clothing and favoring army green. Beth Snelling described the VR as wearing all black or dark blue, and McGowan described him as wearing a camouflage army jacket. The EAR was often armed with snub-nosed revolvers. This matches the guns described by both Beth Snelling and McGowan. 
Both the EAR and the VR were described as speaking with a growl or a whisper through clenched teeth. Everyone felt that his voice was obviously disguised and was covering a high-pitched voice that kind of came out when he got excited. The East Area Rapist's first known attack was on Friday, June 18, 1976, at around 4 a.m. The victim was a 23-year-old woman. She lived with her father, but he was out of town, so she was alone in the house for the night. She described her attacker as a white male, 20 to 25 years old, 5'9", 165 to 170 pounds. She said he had broad shoulders and a muscular upper body. He spoke with clenched teeth in what she described as a hoarse whisper. The victim was awakened by the EAR, tapping a knife on her bedroom door jamb, and he quickly jumped on top of her, cutting her temple with the knife. He said, if you make one move or sound, I'll stick this knife in you. He'd used Johnson's baby oil in the bathroom prior to waking the victim. He brought bindings to the scene, but also used her bra to tie her feet together with a square knot and loop. He ransacked the house, including the kitchen, but focused on her bedroom. Items stolen included $10 cash, 3 to 4 silver dollars, and Winston cigarettes. The victim's purse was taken outside, dumped out on the lawn, and left on the back patio. The EAR had stacked a birdbath on top of a block of wood and used it as an improvised step stool to reach the phone line. The victim had received several hang-up phone calls prior to the attack. There are many commonalities between this attack and the September 11, 1975 VR attack on Beth Snelling. They lived in the same type of house and neighborhood. Both were awakened in bed by someone in a mask who threatened to stab her if she made a sound. The physical descriptions were described as 5'9", 165 to 170 in the EAR case, and Beth said 5'9", 150 to 175. Both described their attackers having strong shoulders and arms. The EAR victim described him as speaking with clenched teeth in a hoarse whisper. Beth said the VR talked in a low masculine whisper or a growl. The EAR victim and Mrs. Snelling both had their purses taken outside, dumped out, and left on the patio area. There are also other MO points in this attack that are consistent with the VR, including the EAR victim received hang-up calls prior to the attack. The VR victim on September 22, 1975, received both hang-up and obscene phone calls. The use of Johnson's baby products and other lotions was found at several VR scenes. The EAR ransacked the entire house, including leaving open kitchen drawers, and focused on the victim's bedroom. This is the pattern in all of the VR cases. Additionally, little was stolen and included silver dollars, a favorite VR theft item. The EAR had used items in the backyard to reach the phone lines, which is similar to the VR taking and replacing the neighbor's planter to peep into Jane Smith's windows. The second EAR attack occurred at 2 a.m. on Saturday, July 17, 1976. The victims were two sisters, 15 and 16 years old. The girls' parents were out of town, and they were alone in the house. The EAR's footprints were found under the bedroom window of one of the sisters, and entry to the house was gained by prying open a sliding glass door. Footprints were also found on the back fence. The footprints had a wavy sole pattern. One of the sisters awoke to find the EAR on top of her in bed, with his hand over her mouth. She said she could not breathe. He said, shut up, I have a knife, and if you don't shut up, I can kill you. He talked like he kept his teeth together, and he whispered real angry, she said. When she resisted, he punched her in the back of the head several times. The second sister awoke to find him on her back. He made the same threat to stab her. She was also punched several times in the back of the head. Neither sister could recall him wearing gloves, but the lack of fingerprints indicated that he probably was. The entire house was ransacked, including the kitchen, with the bedroom drawers turned out and thrown on the floor. Two empty Coors beer cans were found in the yard and one in the kitchen. The beer was brought to the house by the EAR, and neither girl noticed the smell of beer on his breath. The sister's description was of a white male, 17 to 20 years old, 5 foot 10 to 6 foot, with a muscular frame. There were no odors detected other than baby lotion applied by the EAR on the scene. Looking back to the VR, the sisters here clearly fit with his target victims. The sisters were attractive middle-class high school girls like Beth Snelling, Jane Smith, Donna, Jennifer, and the other VR peeping and ransacking victims. 
The EAR struck at 2 a.m. at a single-story ranch house, just like at the Snellings. The beer cans brought to the scene and left without fingerprints are also interesting. A liquor bottle with no fingerprints was found in the yard next to the Snellings, and several soda and beer bottles and cans were found next to Donna's bike, also without fingerprints. We have been told, but we can't confirm, that several similar cans were found in the orange grove next to Jennifer's body. The EAR physical description is consistent with Beth's attacker, and, like Beth, the sisters describe their attacker as not having any odor. It's also interesting that law enforcement determined that the EAR was wearing some type of tight-fitting gloves, even though neither sister remembered seeing any, including the one who woke with his hand over her mouth, smothering her. Beth was also awakened with a hand smothering her, and remained certain that the VR was not wearing gloves, even though the lack of fingerprints suggested that he was. Both sisters were forcefully punched several times in the back of the head, which is consistent with injuries to Donna and the kicks to Beth Snelling's head when the VR became frustrated and left her in the carport. The clenched teeth whisper and threat to be quiet or get stabbed were also identical to Beth's attacker. This was a middle-class neighborhood of single-story ranch homes. Entry was gained by prying the glass slider, and marks on the fence indicated that he was traveling over fences through backyards. Footprints were found under one of the bedroom windows, which is consistent with the Snelling attack and Jane Smith prowling. The ransacking, kitchen drawers, and bedroom dresser dumping were all done in the VR style, as was the application of baby lotion. One last weird thing was that the EAR was wearing a multicolored ski cap during the assault on one of the sisters. It's hard not to notice that there were multicolored ski caps in Beth and Donna's cases. It's difficult to imagine why the EAR was wearing that, especially since it came from the other sister's closet, and he put it away in a dresser drawer before he left the scene. The third EAR attack on Sunday, August 29, 1976, did not go as planned. Law enforcement believed that it was the 15-year-old daughter in the house who was the intended victim, but she was not alone. The girl's 12-year-old sister was awakened just before 3.30 a.m. by her wind chimes being bumped, and she looked out to see someone prying open the window with his left hand. Although the girl alerted the house, including her sister and mother, the EAR did not flee but came in and attempted to tie up the 12-year-old and her mother. The mother ignored the fact that he was armed with a gun and club and fought back. She was beaten pretty severely with the club, but she and the 12-year-old escaped out the front while the 15-year-old made it out her bedroom window to the neighbor's house. The EAR was described as 18 to 20 years old, 5'9 to 5'10, 165 pounds, with a light complexion. He spoke in a forced whisper with his teeth together, but his voice got high-pitched as he fought with the victims, and they thought he disguised his voice to sound deeper. Law enforcement discovered that he had used a patio chair to look in the bedroom window, and that the house was only two backyards away from the first attack. Again, we have the same choice of victim, neighborhood, ranch house, time of night, and physical description seen in Beth's attack. Although it's unclear which hand held the gun and which the club, the EAR and VR both appear to be left-handed or ambidextrous. The gun was described as a snub-nosed revolver, also consistent with the VR in the Snelling and McGowan shootings. The club was described as being a foot-long, leather-covered antique police billy club. This may have been the same antique billy club, police baton, stolen in one of the later VR break-ins on October 24, 1975. The EAR next struck on Saturday, September 4, 1976, around 11 p.m., this appears to be a victim of opportunity likely encountered while the EAR was prowling the neighborhood. The 29-year-old woman was doing laundry in her parents' garage while they were away. She was loading the laundry into her car when the EAR launched a violent attack in the driveway. He punched her in the face, breaking her nose and knocking her out. He dragged her into her parents' backyard, holding a knife to her throat. He then took her into the house and checked to make sure they were alone. The victim was tied using square knots under a half hitch also called an overhand. At some point, he unplugged the air conditioner and left two empty Coors beer cans in the kitchen. The entire house was ransacked, including the drawers, closets, and kitchen. In this attack, he left open a door as an escape route, with a chair placed as an alarm to warn him if someone came in. The victim described her attacker as 5'8 to 5'9 and said he spoke only in a whisper through clenched teeth. She also said he applied lotion. Before he left, he took her outside and tied her to a patio post. 
He stole her car, which was found about a mile away. In canvassing the neighborhood, they found several neighbors who had experienced recent prowlings and break-ins, but had not reported them to the police because nothing was stolen. It's really unknown if the VR ever attacked any victims of opportunity, because VPD and TCSO were not working together or even sharing information. Additionally, when VPD went back to catalog all of the VR activities, they focused solely on break-ins, not any other crimes involving Mount Whitney teens in the VR areas like Jennifer's disappearance or the kidnap rape in April of 1975. If Jennifer and Donna were killed by the VR, then they were both victims of opportunity, and there could have been other rapes or attempts we haven't discovered. Other aspects of this EAR attack have very specific VR signatures. The complete ransacking, including the kitchen, the opening of an escape route, the chair used as an alarm warning system, the application of lotion, the clenched teeth whisper, and the empty cores cans all point to the VR. It's also interesting to note that the AC was unplugged and the victim's car was stolen. This again raises two unresolved questions from the Snelling attack. Was their AC disabled that night, and was the VR planning to take Beth in one of the family cars? The EAR's next victim was clearly specifically targeted and gave law enforcement a lot of insight into his activities. He struck on Tuesday, October 5, 1976, at 6.30 a.m., right after the 29-year-old victim's husband had left for work. Her young son was with her in bed, and he was tied up during the attack. He used the standard threat to be quiet or he would use his knife, which he held in his left hand. He ransacked the house going through all of the drawers and closets, including the kitchen. He applied lotion and placed a chair under the entrance doorknob to prevent it being opened if her husband returned home. He also left the gate open for a quick escape. This victim described her attacker as 5'9 to 5'10 with a medium build, possibly 30 to 40 years old. Her house was a single-story ranch style near a cement line drainage ditch with an open field and orchard behind it. Police had been called to the house a week or so earlier after the victim discovered muddy footprints in her son's room and signs of a break-in. Her dresser drawers and jewelry box had been gone through, and a few pieces of costume jewelry were missing. Her expensive jewelry was untouched. The responding police found one of her husband's blue dress socks in the backyard and evidence that the burglar had come over the backyard fence. It turned out that several houses in the neighborhood had been ransacked, and multiple neighbors reported finding jewelry in their homes that were not theirs, but had been stolen in other ransackings. The victim also reported receiving several hang-up phone calls leading up to the attack. In the last call, she confronted the caller and told him the police knew who he was. He responded by threatening to kill her husband. The neighborhood, house type, and location near a ditch are all consistent with the VR, as was the ransacking, leaving the gate open, and application of lotion. The use of a chair jammed under the entrance door is identical to the VR break-in of November 6, 1975. The hang-up calls, the physical description, also matched the VR, although this victim gave a much higher estimate of his age than any other EAR victim. The hang-up calls and threats are similar to the calls received by the VR victim in October 1975, shortly after the Snelling homicide. The blue men's dress sock matches the one the VR used to carry away his loot in the December 10, 1975 ransacking, which was found at the scene of the McGowan shooting. The EAR hit again on Saturday, October 9, 1976, at 4.30 a.m. The victim was a teen who was home alone while her father was out of town. She awoke unable to breathe with a hand across her mouth and a man saying, Don't scream or I will kill you. After binding her, he led her out onto her back patio where a piece of carpet had been laid out. When he left, he dragged the carpet over to a post and left her tied to it. He entered the house by prying the sliding glass door and ransacked her bedroom and the kitchen. Apparently unsure if the victim was alone in the house, the EAR had cut clothesline in the backyard and used it to tie together all of the bedroom doors so they could not be opened from the inside and anchored it to the bathroom faucet. This strange webbing also would have prevented the victim from escaping down the hallway, and she had to duck under it as she was led outside. She described her attacker as being white male, 22 to 27 years, who only spoke in a whisper. While the police were on scene later that morning, a young man from the house next door, whose parents were also out of town, reported that he thought their house had been broken into because he found a strange bag of jewelry in the house. That was enough for the neighbor to become a prime EAR suspect. He wasn't cleared until he had an alibi for one of the later attacks.
Once again, there are many consistencies with the VR here. The house and neighborhood, the teen victim waking to a hand over her mouth and whispered threats, and the ransacking. The use of the improvised alarm system and taking the victim outside also point to the VR. It's interesting to note that the EAR seemed to be unsure if the victim's father was home or not, and tied the father's bedroom door shut just in case. It seems the EAR was concerned about being confronted as he led the girl out of the house. If this was the VR, he clearly learned some lessons from the Snelling attack. The next EAR attack was first detected by the victim's 10-year-old son, who was awakened at 2.30 a.m. on Monday, October 18, 1976, by his dog barking. He took his dog to the backyard to go outside and saw a man prying the sliding glass door. The man briefly retreated to the top of the fence, then, after realizing the dog was harmless, came back and crawled through the previously opened kitchen window. He could have just fled since the boy had gone to alert his mother, but he didn't. He made the usual whispered threats to kill them with his knife through clenched teeth. He tied up the son, ignored the younger daughter sleeping in her room, and let the victim secure the barking dog. The entire house was ransacked, including her dresser drawers, jewelry box, kitchen cupboards, and refrigerator, and he brought two cans of beer, which he left empty in the kitchen. She described the EAR as five foot seven with a medium solid build, wearing black tennis shoes. In following the tracking dog, law enforcement determined that he had first gone to the neighbor's house and the neighbor was likely the intended target, but she had changed her schedule and was not home that night. When his first choice was not available, he simply switched victims. This has many of the VR hallmarks, including the details of the ransacking and whispered threats to stab through clenched teeth. He pried a sliding glass door on a single-story ranch house in a middle-class neighborhood and brought beer cans to the scene. For the first time, the EAR struck twice in the same day, finding a 19-year-old victim that night at 11 p.m. as she pulled into her driveway. A masked man quickly approached her open car window and put his hand across her mouth. He spoke in a whisper through clenched teeth and threatened to kill her with a knife he had to her throat. He physically pulled her from the car and took her into her backyard, where bindings cut from her clothesline were already laid out. He then took her to her neighbor's backyard, where a blindfold and gag were laid out in waiting. He left her tied up in the neighbor's backyard and took her car using the keys he found in her purse. Her car was found a few blocks away with her dog, unharmed, locked in the trunk. She described the man as six foot, 170 pounds. Law enforcement believed that the EAR had grabbed her when his original target was unavailable. The house was across the street from the concrete-lined irrigation ditch and large open space leading to the American River. Besides the whispered threats, there really isn't a lot to connect this attack specifically to the VR. The victim's car keys were taken from her purse and never recovered. We still wonder if any car keys were missing from the Snelling house and never found. It's after this attack, on November 4, 1976, that the first newspaper story on the EAR was published. The Sheriff's Department was forced to address the case publicly after it was discussed at a community meeting. The next EAR victim was a 16-year-old girl, and she was definitely targeted. He broke into her house at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, November 10, 1976, while she was home alone watching TV with her dog on her lap. She heard a noise, and all of a sudden, a masked intruder was holding a knife to her throat, threatening in a clenched teeth whisper to kill her if she made a noise. He tied her up and led her outside, where she saw more bindings hanging from the handlebars of her bike. The EAR left her on the patio and replaced the window screen he removed to enter the house. He then went back into the house, turned off the TV, turned on the heat and lights, and locked the door. He wanted to erase all signs of his presence in the kidnapping. It worked. When her parents returned home a little later, they saw nothing amiss and assumed she was out with her boyfriend. He then walked her down the concrete-lined canal that ran behind her house. It was pitch black, but he carried a single D-cell-type flashlight that fit into the palm of his hand. They stopped at a spot with a large tree that he seemed to have pre-selected. He cut off her pants and underwear with his knife, but did not sexually assault her, possibly because she had her period. He eventually left, telling her to wait 20 minutes. 
She was so scared she waited an hour before making her way towards home and alerting a neighbor who'd called the police. She described the EAR as 18 to 23 years old, 5 foot 10, 165 pounds. She said he had brown hair and a pale complexion. He was wearing a heavy military fatigue type jacket. The knife he used had been taken from her own kitchen. The victim had been receiving crank phone calls in the week or two prior to the attack. This attack shares a lot of similarities with the Snelling case. Same type of neighborhood and house and a pretty 16-year-old high school girl targeted. Also the same clenched teeth whispered threats. The victim was led outside and the EAR was careful to replace the screen and set the house to hide the kidnapping. It's still a mystery exactly where the VR planned to take Beth. They had left Beth's yard and were either heading for a car in the carport or down the driveway. Since VPD did not find any areas that appeared to be staged for an attack in the neighboring yards, we're back to thinking he may have been planning to take her in a car. The physical description matches both Beth's and McGowan's, including the heavy military fatigue jacket. The fact that the EAR victim said he did not sexually assault her because she was menstruating makes us think immediately of Donna and the lack of sexual assault in her case, despite being found half-naked. Reading about this EAR attack also paints a picture of Donna and Jennifer, alone with their killer, in isolated spots along the concrete-lined Frank Kern Canal. It's terrifying to think about what all these young girls faced on all those cold fall nights. The EAR's last attack of 1976 was on Saturday, December 18th at 6.30 p.m. The victim was a 15-year-old girl who was home alone for the evening while her family went to a Christmas party. She was playing the piano in the living room when she was suddenly confronted by a masked intruder holding a knife to her throat. He made the usual threats in a forced whisper to kill her if she made a sound. She felt that he was disguising a high-pitched voice. He took her outside to the backyard and left her tied to a picnic table while he ransacked the house. He assaulted her in several locations within the house and applied lotion. He had kicked down the fence, leaving tennis shoe prints on his way into her yard. He cut off her clothes with a knife, and before he left, he took the clothes to the neighbor's yard and left them there. She described the attacker as being about six foot tall with a regular build. She'd been receiving hang-up phone calls prior to the attack. It's interesting to note that the last two attacks occurred during the evening, during the VR's normal ransacking hours. The girls were both his target victim types and were clearly stalked ahead of time. The neighborhood, house type, and taking the girls outside all match the VR's MO, as do the lotion, mask, and whispered threats. Almost all of these 1976 attacks involve a knife held to the victim's throat, and several of them receive small cuts. It's difficult not to think of Donna being taken to an isolated outside location and stabbed. Also, taking the victim's clothing from her house and leaving them in the neighbor's yard is very weird, especially since both Donna and Jennifer had their clothes taken. Was he trying to cast suspicion on a neighbor or just cause confusion? This is from the Visalia Times Delta, May 18, 1977. Police seeking to link rapist Snelling Slayer. Two Visalia police detectives are in Sacramento today probing the possibility that a man being sought as a suspect in the raping of 23 women could be the Visalia ransacker and possibly the killer of Claude Snelling. A number of similarities in physical description and actions of the Sacramento rapist and the Visalia ransacker have swung the Visalia investigation, the most intensive in the city's history, to the state's capital city. Although it has never been proved, investigators have been working on the premise that the ransacker is the same person who killed the College of Sequoia's journalism instructor September 11, 1975. Lieutenant Roy Springmeyer said today, because of the degree of the similarity in the physical descriptions and the methods used, we just can't afford to overlook the possibility that the same person could be responsible for the rapes and the Visalia crimes. Detectives Bill McGowan and Dwayne Shipley left Visalia early today to meet in Sacramento with investigators probing the rapes in which the attacker now has threatened to kill two persons. The increasing violent behavior of the Sacramento attacker matches the psychological profile compiled during investigation of the Visalia ransacker case and the murder of Snelling, investigators said. In the Sacramento case, psychologists believe the rapist is trying to prove himself sexually because he has, quote, difficulty establishing a normal sexual relationship, end quote. When psychologists compiled a profile of the man responsible for the Visalia crimes, they said he probably would become more violent and dangerous. 
Officers also are convinced that the man who shot Snelling is the man who shot at Detective McGowan during a December 10th stakeout of a neighborhood in which a prowler believed to be the ransacker had been working. McGowan was not hurt, but a bullet pierced the veteran officer's flashlight. In Sacramento, the frequency of the rapes has been increasing along with the degree of violence. In recent weeks, the rapist has become increasingly bold, and on six occasions, the sexual attacks were committed after the victim's husbands were tied up by the attacker. In most of the earlier attacks, however, the victim was alone in the home. The rapist typically wears a mask, ties up people, and ransacks the house. The Sacramento attacks have occurred in middle-income and upper-income residential areas, and a local group calling itself the East Area Rapist Surveillance Patrol is offering a $10,000 reward for the arrest and conviction of the rapist. In Visalia, $4,000 is being offered for the arrest and conviction of Snelling's killer. Visalia Police Sergeant John Vaughn, who has been heading the Snelling murder investigation, said today he has copies of many of the Sacramento rape investigation reports and the profiles of the crime patterns. They are being closely studied and compared to the information gathered by Visalia officers during the 20-month investigation of the Visalia slain and the nearly four-year probe of the ransacking burglaries, Vaughn said. There are also similarities of the composite pictures of the Snelling ransacker suspect and the Sacramento rapist. Honestly, we're really struggling to come up with MO differences between these EAR attacks and the VR. The major one is the EAR immediately binding, gagging, and blindfolding his victims. We have no evidence of Beth or Donna being bound, but Jennifer was tied with her bra, just like one of these EAR victims. Looking at the Snelling attack, presumably the VR learned that trying to kidnap Beth the way he did had been a bad idea. The lack of bindings meant she struggled and flailed against him. The lack of gag allowed her to whimper and make noises that woke her family, and failing to blindfold her meant that she was able to give the police a fairly detailed physical description. We don't know if the VR is responsible for Donna's murder, or exactly what happened in her kidnapping, but there are signs she was punched in the back of the head, hit in the face, and kicked, so the killer may have had a difficult time controlling her, and or keeping her quiet. Presumably, the VR would have learned from these cases and planned for bindings, gags, and blindfolds in the future. The EAR appeared to target girls who were alone for the night or evening. Again, although different than the Snelling attack, it could be another case of lesson learned. Taking Beth with her father home was disastrous, and the murder drew far too much attention to his activities. One can assume that he would seek to avoid that type of confrontation in the future. In the one EAR attack where he wasn't sure if the victim was alone, he tied the father's bedroom door shut. He seemed to have a very specific concern that the father might come out and confront him. These EAR attacks show a flexible M.O., he generally liked to pre-select victims, call them, and learn their routine. But if he had an attack night in mind, he could quickly switch targets or seize a victim of opportunity. These assaults also looked like the VR had finally melded his activities into his idea of the perfect crime. He blended all of his peeping, stalking, and ransacking behavior with actual assaults on the teen girls he had long targeted. We've covered the basic similarities in physical description and the use of masks, gloves, and revolvers. They both had size 9 shoes and were either left-handed or ambidextrous. Both the EAR and VR spoke with a clenched teeth growl or whisper and used a mostly fixed set of commands to control their victims. They hid in the evenings and in the middle of the night when the victims were in bed. The ransacking and items stolen were identical, as was the use of lotion from the house or brought to the scene. He pried windows and sliding glass doors, left window screens in odd places, and traveled through yards and over fences. He left escape routes open in the houses and yards, placed chairs under entrance doors, and created improvised alarms to alert himself to someone approaching. He picked middle-class neighborhoods of single-family, ranch-style homes, and often approached through ditches, canals, fields, orchards, trails, or open spaces. The most frustrating aspect of Donna's homicide is the lack of answers regarding the invoice book, notepad, and bottles and cans, all free of fingerprints, that were found near Donna's bike. There is also the question of her clothes being taken from the murder scene and displayed in a trail that was clearly meant to be discovered. Similarly, after the Snelling murder, VR items were left in irrigation ditches four miles apart, with no obvious motive. 
From the beginning, the EAR started leaving empty Coors beer cans at his attacks. These were brought to the scene by the EAR and did not have identifiable fingerprints. He also stole jewelry and burglaries and then left the items in other houses. He took a victim's clothing from her house and left it in the neighbor's backyard. The EAR dumped a gun stolen from the Modesto victims on June 23, 1978, in the irrigation canal located behind Palmia Drive. Obviously, this is reminiscent of the VR stolen gun dumped in the irrigation canal shortly after the Snelling homicide. Why would he throw away stolen guns? Presumably, they were ballistics tested and not connected to other crimes. It's so difficult to know why the VR and EAR moved items between the scenes, planted random items, and disposed of others in irrigation ditches. Was he just trying to confuse the police, or planting false clues meant to direct law enforcement to other suspects? Whatever the original purpose, Oscar's invoice book sealed his fate, and likely allowed Donna's killer to go free. We don't see it in these first attacks, but once the EAR started hitting couples, the VR's trick of using dishes as alarms appeared again. Dishes that the VR once stacked in front of doors or hung from knobs are found on the backs of husbands tied up while their wives are assaulted. This is an incredibly unique shared MO. Both the VR and EAR worked multiple similar neighborhoods at the same time, switching between them in no obvious pattern. Later, the EAR rotated between cities and towns in the same manner. Presumably, this helped him avoid patrols, stakeouts, and overly alert neighbors. Sometimes he never returned to a neighborhood. Sometimes he hit the same area again a year later. You could drive yourself insane trying to make sense of these actions, but it clearly worked for him. Some of the other EAR behaviors that aren't specifically mentioned much in these 1976 reports, but appear in later attacks, include opening and closing drapes, taking, moving, or destroying photos, stealing single earrings, class rings, and coins, leaving expensive jewelry, and taking food from the fridge outside or leaving it in odd places. These are all part of the VRMO. Another similarity that doesn't appear until after 1976 is that both the VR and EAR preferred to shoot rather than retreat when chased or confronted by men. The VR shot Claude Snelling and Agent McGowan while they were reaching to climb over fences between them. Rodney Miller, an 18-year-old Sacramento resident, chased the EAR in February of 1977, was shot as he came over a fence, only to find the EAR crouched on the other side, gun in his left hand. He barely survived that shooting and described the EAR as 20, blonde, 5 foot 10, 170 pounds. The murder of the Maggiores in February 1978 has also been linked to the EAR through the Rancho Cordova neighborhood, the mask the shooter was seen wearing, and pre-tied shoelaces found at the scene. It seems likely that the Maggiore's dog wandered into a backyard where the EAR was peeping, and he threw it in the pool while he tried to make an escape, only to run into the Maggiore's looking for the dog. The fact that he chased them down and murdered them both in cold blood in the middle of a quiet residential neighborhood is insane. Even crazier, he managed to escape the police dragnet that followed. It's unknown if they saw the EAR without his mask and could identify him, but he clearly viewed them as some kind of witnesses that couldn't be left alive. They were running away, not chasing him. As with the Snelling and McGowan cases, these murders drew unwanted attention, and after a revised composite of the Majority Shooter was released, the EAR never struck in Sacramento again. Another commonality between the EAR and VR was their use of stolen bikes. On the night of the Snelling murder, the VR stole a bike and left it a couple of houses away from the Snelling residence. In Walnut Creek on June 2, 1979, a stolen bike was found a few houses away from the EAR attack that night. And in Goleta on October 1, 1979, the EAR retrieved his stolen bike from the neighbor's lawn, rode it for a few blocks, and presumably dumped it to escape on foot through the San Jose Creek bed. It's interesting that the bikes weren't left in front of the victims' houses, presumably because it might have drawn unwanted attention. If the bike were discovered during an attack, he could just walk away and leave it behind. Several of the 1976 EAR attacks have footprints described as wavy or herringbone soles. Buried deep in Donna's case was a single reference to wavy sole tennis shoe prints found at the scene where Donna's bike was discovered. TCSO forensics officer Brian Johnson saw these prints 
but was specifically instructed by Sergeant Bird not to take any photos of those prints or measure them for size. We can only speculate whether or not those might have matched the EAR prints. Likewise, we wonder if the black tennis shoes described by the victim in the early EAR attack on October 18, 1976, matched the BR size 9 Converse All-Stars. The reason we wanted to look at the early EAR cases is because MO is generally learned and malleable. A criminal's MO changes over time as he learns how to maximize success and minimize risk. Good examples of this are when the EAR tried cutting off his victim's clothing with a knife, but later abandoned it as unnecessarily difficult, and the way he stopped taking his victims outside, maybe to minimize the risks of getting caught, or perhaps he developed ways to create the atmosphere he wanted within the house by turning off the lights and heat. It's logical to assume that if the VR and the EAR were the same offender, the MO would be most similar in the 1976 cases. Law enforcement likes to talk about signature behaviors which are behaviors that are unnecessary to complete the crime, but might serve a psychological need for the offender. One of the debates with the EAR is whether the bindings and knots are MO or signatures. That is, does he tie them up to help complete the attack, or does he do it because it provides its own pleasure? This is a dangerous game, because it attempts to get into the offender's head, and this can lead to incorrect assumptions. Maybe the offender just wanted law enforcement to think that the knots matter, Maybe he was feeding them a false lead. We know he bound them and has some familiarity with knots. The facts are all we really need. Ultimately, we don't care if the VR committed his crimes because he had brain damage that left him incapable of recognizing the needs and feelings of others and putting them before his own, or because his mother made him feel small and he wanted to punish all women to get back at her. Any guesses about questions like these are opinions, no matter how educated the guesser. Opinions about the potential background and motive of an offender can be useful tools, but they can't be exchanged for actual facts. There are several widely held presumptions about the EAR that are guesses, not facts. One is that he was in the military. There is no direct evidence of this. It's just a widely held opinion. It's based partly on the number of war veterans in the 1970s and the number of bases in the Sacramento area. People like the idea that the reason he hit in so many areas was because he was moved from base to base. Maybe he just drove his car to different places in California. Despite all of the talk of the EAR's tactical or special forces training, he was not dropping from helicopters, setting off explosives, or killing people with his bare hands. He used basic hunting and Boy Scout techniques, nothing more complicated than that. Normal teens can hop over fences or pry a sliding window with a screwdriver. Ransacking kitchens, navigating ditches at night, and tying knots and shoelaces do not require military training. We've heard people argue that the VR can't be the EAR because of something contained in a psychological or behavioral profile created for the EAR. This discipline became popular in the 1970s and was based on the idea that by studying known offenders, predictions could be made about possible offenders and unsolved crimes. This was presented as science, but has turned out to be highly unscientific and even harmful to criminal investigations. Interviewing serial offenders is largely an exercise in futility. They are liars by nature and not particularly self-aware. Asking a murderer for details of his crimes leads to stories which minimize his culpability, and asking about motivations gets a list of excuses. Often the things they are most likely to lie about are also the most important for gaining true insight into similar offenders. Early profiles of both the VR and EAR called them loners, unable to maintain normal relationships, who would never stop until caught, and would have a stash of trophies from his victims. This same type of profile was done in the Gary Ridgway case, and it was extremely harmful to the investigation. Although Ridgway was looked at numerous times, he was married, held a steady job, had no stash of victims' items when they searched his house, and he did just stop killing. He didn't want to get caught. Ridgway also easily passed a lie detector test. The fact that they had him tied to four victims became less important than their belief that he was cleared by the profile. Escalation is another misunderstood theory that comes up in discussions of whether or not the VR was the EAR. First, the VR series is exactly what a criminologist would expect to see prior to the first EAR attack. That's pretty obvious from Sacramento County's May 1977 analysis of the case. Peeping, prowling, minor break-ins, more serious sexualized break-ins, 
and then an actual attack on a peeping target. The EAR did not commit his first crime on June 18, 1976, and Sacramento has never been able to identify an appropriate series of crimes leading up to that first attack. That being said, the theory of escalation is only useful as a potential predictive tool, that is to make an educated guess about an offender's future dangerousness. It was easy to predict that the EAR would go on to commit homicides like the ONS cases, especially after two couples in a row resisted him and caused him to be chased from the scenes. He did not want to be apprehended, and it was becoming more difficult to find compliant couples to attack. However, escalation is not a theory meant to exclude suspects. Criminal escalation is rarely a straight line. The process of maximizing reward while minimizing the risk of getting caught is usually through trial and error. Offenders often commit serious crimes like rape or murder, but then go back to less serious acts. There are many complex human factors and motivations at work. All we're saying with all of this is that it's wrong to rely too much on any type of guesses regarding who the EAR was, what motivated him, why he stopped, or how many victims he really has. Review of these cases should focus on known facts and not confuse them with opinions. One opinion that may be preventing these cases from being solved is the presumed age. In reviewing the VR and Snelling files, VPD started out looking for a teen who matched the prowler seen in yards and who would have been likely to be wearing Converse, someone who would have been targeting Mount Whitney students in very personal ways. However, after the crimes became more serious and expert profilers weighed in, the suspect age crept up. This was based 100% on guessing. A teen couldn't have taken Beth Snelling and shot her father, so he must be older. Even McGowan started to doubt his own eyes, which is crazy because the only reason he didn't kill the VR was because he was certain he was a kid. Just compare the May 1977 EAR memo, which places his age in 1976 at between 18 and 24. This would make him between 59 and 65 in 2017. The FBI flyer released last year would make him between 61 and 76 in 2017. How did these suspects get so much older? In talking to current VPD and task force members, there appears to be several reasons, all opinion-based. The first is a general false belief that young teens don't commit serious sexually motivated crimes. We could do an entire podcast series on terrifying teen offenders, some of them cases we have worked on personally. The second is the idea that he had already been in the military, perhaps a PTSD-damaged combat vet. The final factor seems to be some type of numerical averaging of the EAR victim's guesses about his age. There are a couple of problems with this type of age averaging. None of the age guesses were made while actually seeing his face. Days apart, they got guesses ranging from 16 to 40. That doesn't mean he was 28. We have no way to test the accuracy of guesses by 50 women of varying ages who see men in masks while being terrorized and assaulted. These guesses are bad, untested data, and feeding them into a computer program will generate junk. Some of the women's age estimates were more accurate than others. We just don't know which ones. The past and current level of hostility towards the idea that the VR and the EAR were the same offender is really mystifying. Sergeant Bond did exactly what he was supposed to do. He became aware of crimes with an MO similar to the VR and tried to work with the Sacramento Sheriff's Office to share information and possibly work the cases together. DPD were not only sent packing, but Sacramento publicly called them irresponsible, unprofessional publicity seekers. This is from the Visalia Times Delta, May 18, 1977. Police seeking to link rapist Snelling Slayer. Two Visalia police detectives are in Sacramento today probing the possibility that a man being sought as a suspect in the raping of 23 women could be the Visalia ransacker and possibly the killer of Claude Snelling. A number of similarities in physical description and actions of the Sacramento rapist and the Visalia ransacker have swung the Visalia investigation, the most intensive in the city's history, to the state's capital city. Although it has never been proved, investigators have been working on the premise that the ransacker is the same person who killed the College of Sequoia's journalism instructor September 11, 1975. Lieutenant Roy Springmeyer said today, because of the degree of the similarity in the physical descriptions and the methods used, we just can't afford to overlook the possibility that the same person could be responsible for the rapes and the Visalia crimes. 
Detectives Bill McGowan and Dwayne Shipley left Vesalia early today to meet in Sacramento with investigators probing the rapes in which the attacker now has threatened to kill two persons. The increasing violent behavior of the Sacramento attacker matches the psychological profile compiled during investigation of the Vesalia Ransacker case and the murder of Snelling, investigators said. In the Sacramento case, psychologists believe the rapist is trying to prove himself sexually because he has, quote, difficulty establishing a normal sexual relationship, end quote. When psychologists compiled a profile of the man responsible for the Visalia crimes, they said he probably would become more violent and dangerous. Officers also are convinced that the man who shot Snelling is the man who shot at Detective McGowan during a December 10th stakeout of a neighborhood in which a prowler believed to be the ransacker had been working. McGowan was not hurt, but a bullet pierced the veteran officer's flashlight. In Sacramento, the frequency of the rapes has been increasing along with the degree of violence. In recent weeks, the rapist has become increasingly bold, and on six occasions, the sexual attacks were committed after the victim's husbands were tied up by the attacker. In most of the earlier attacks, however, the victim was alone in the home. The rapist typically wears a mask, ties up people, and ransacks the house. The Sacramento attacks have occurred in middle-income and upper-income residential areas, and a local group calling itself the East Area Rapist Surveillance Patrol is offering a $10,000 reward for the arrest and conviction of the rapist. In Visalia, $4,000 is being offered for the arrest and conviction of Snelling's killer. Visalia Police Sergeant John Vaughn, who has been heading the Snelling murder investigation, said today he has copies of many of the Sacramento rape investigation reports and the profiles of the crime patterns. They are being closely studied and compared to the information gathered by Visalia officers during the 20-month investigation of the Visalia slain and the nearly four-year probe of the ransacking burglaries, Vaughn said. There are also similarities of the composite pictures of the Snelling ransacker suspect and the Sacramento rapist. That's pretty much the exact same response we've had trying to discuss the issue with current task force members. One common response is that VPD made up a phony connection because they couldn't solve their case. In fact, VPD did an excellent job of catching the VR. He just disappeared after knocking McGowan to the ground with a shot to his flashlight. It's not VPD's fault that the VR figured out to move on after being caught in a stakeout and having his face seen. Another response is that the VR's physical description did not match the EAR, or that the VR was positively identified as Peter Burgess, but VPD couldn't prosecute. We've addressed that extensively in episode 11, so we won't rehash that here. The most infuriating argument for refusing to investigate the VR and EAR cases together is the assertion that it's impossible to know if they're related due to a lack of physical evidence, and they can only be matched through MO. Since Sacramento Sheriff's Department disposed of all of their physical evidence in the EAR cases, they're in exactly the same boat. To our knowledge, Stockton, Modesto, and Davis are also only connected to the EAR ONS series through MO, but the task force is not arguing that those cases should be severed from the investigation. So, why does any of this matter? Who cares if Donna and Jennifer were killed by the VR or if the VR was also the EAR and ONS? In general, the more cases you have, the more details and possible connections you can draw. Do the victims have anything in common? Can you find a suspect who is living or working near the crime scenes? If you canvass the neighborhoods, can you find sightings of the same person or vehicle? It's also possible to check with the various law enforcement jurisdictions for parking tickets, towed vehicles, speeding citations, and burglars, prowlers, and peepers caught in the area. Investigators usually want to pay special attention to the beginning of a series because that's where the offender was still learning and more likely to make mistakes. The first crimes may give clues as to where the offender felt particularly comfortable, and his early targets may have been neighbors or people in his circle of friends, family, or acquaintances. In this case, if the AAR ONS was originally from Tulare County, you've suddenly narrowed the pool of potential suspects considerably. We have no hope that any of this will happen. 
Task Force members have repeatedly and angrily stated that the VR was not the EAR, and they don't want to hear any more about it. Given the information provided by the FBI last year, it appears they share that opinion. It's particularly sad because Claude Snelling was a true hero, and his case remains unsolved. Jennifer and Donna also deserve better investigations than they will ever receive from TCSO. If outside law enforcement resources were dedicated to these cases, and they were resolved by arresting a suspect who is not the EAR, isn't that still worth the cost and effort? The ONS is known for sure to have killed 10, and the EAR at least 2. What is the harm in running down the VR?